Well, our scripture reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. And we're reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And now you've had a chance to look at it. Let's recite that from memory. If not, uh, the passage can be found on page 980 in your pew Bible. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is God's word. Please be seated. So at, um, at some point over the course of the summer, I think about 22 years ago, I was thinking about this this week as I prepared uh, this, this message and, and sought out this text uh, about 22 years ago that I came to hear the gospel for the first time and was marked, confronted with my own sin, the reality of that, but but also the reality of a Savior, of Christ, and the sacrifice he made on the cross for me, and, uh, and by God's grace responded in faith and, and began to understand this gospel in a, a little more detail. And, and the more I understood it, the more I wanted to know more and understand who Christ was and began to grow in my knowledge and understanding of of this good news. And so for the course of the next 20 years of my life, I pursued a path in that direction as the Lord guided and directed. And if you asked me if I understood the gospel, I think I would tell you yes. I think I would tell you that I grasp it deeply. I get it. And yet as I studied this passage, I realized Paul gets it in a, in a whole new way. In a different way. I was astounded by his zeal and his passion and his sacrifice for the gospel, and I was turned upside down as I as I looked at his life and looked to the Christ that he knew that drove him and the gospel that he proclaimed and was sold out for. And I found myself desiring to be like that, more zealous, more passionate, more consumed with the gospel. And, and so I prayed in that way, and I prayed not only for myself, I prayed for you that way, that, that you would 
would see this as we turn to God's Word this morning and, and that you would be marked by it and shaped by it and that, that we as a church would be, would be marked with that kind of passion and zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, it is our, it is our purpose, isn't it? It's our vision. Gospel at work in us, giving life, transforming us, changing us, and then through us into this community and around, around the globe by the power of the Spirit. So as we think about that this morning, toward that end, let us pray. Father, we are uh, amazed when we behold the gospel. We are astounded by it. What you did, what you accomplished, and that you did it for us, for all who call upon you. You did it for Paul. And, and through that one man, Lord, proclaimed the gospel to many and changed this world forever. Father, we desire that in our midst. Help us to see this gospel and, and what it means to be, to be passionate for the gospel above all things. Even as we open your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On April 25, 1951, the gospel came to C.S. Lewis with crystal clarity. It came home in, in a new way with a sharpness that penetrated the recesses of his heart and his mind. And in a letter to Giovanni Calabria, he writes this. During the past year, a great joy has befallen me. Difficult though it is, I shall try to explain this in words. It is astonishing that sometimes we believe that we believe what really in our heart we do not believe. For a long time I believed, that is I thought, that I believed in the forgiveness of sins. But suddenly... On St. Mark's Day, April 25th, this truth appeared in my mind in so clear a light that I perceived that never before had I believed it with my whole heart. So great is the difference between mere affirmation by the intellect and that faith fixed in the very marrow of one's being. In a different letter, Lewis described it similarly, similarly with these words. I had assented to the doctrine years earlier and would have said I believed it. Then one blessed day, it suddenly became real to me. And what I had previously called belief looked absolutely unreal. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? Sometimes we think we believe. That is, we, we go through the cognitive motions, if you will, of belief. But in our hearts, 
in the depths of our soul, we don't really, we don't really believe. But, but there was a day for C.S. Lewis where he truly believed, not just cognitively, but in his heart, in his soul, in his life, with all of his being. There, there was a day for Lewis where the gospel became real. And this is amazing because it happened after he wrote Mere Christianity and, and others, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and the like. And yet there was that day where it became real. That's what happened. And, and for Lewis, you heard it, it brought a flood, a, a torrent of joy. Of great joy, he says, a great joy has befallen me. It, it causes us to ask, what happens when the gospel becomes real to somebody? Profoundly real. That's the question I want to seek to answer this morning. I think Lewis gives us a glimpse but I think Paul gives us an even more glorious picture of that same reality. See, for Paul, it had not only become real, it, it had become Paul's passion, his all-consuming fire. It drove him in life. It defined his life. It set boundaries for life, and it set the course of his life for the entirety of his life. I can think of few passages in all the scriptures and within the Pauline corpus where this is more evident than the one before us this morning. Just, just follow through that passage as, as we just read it a moment ago. I want you to see how the gospel just permeates throughout this text. Though the word is only mentioned twice, I, I see at least seven references to the gospel. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word. That is the gospel. Some indeed preach Christ, that is, they preach the gospel, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it. Do what? They preach Christ. They preach the gospel out of love, not knowing, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's our fifth time. Sixth, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will Rejoice. The gospel runs throughout this passage. And for Paul, it was everything. It was everything. How do we know that? Well, I think we see three things in particular in this passage that help us understand that. I, I think we see three things that happen when the gospel becomes your defining center. You're all-consuming fire when, when it becomes profoundly real to you. Not just cognitive, not just going through the motions. I want to suggest the first thing we see in verses 12 and 13 
is that progress, gospel progress, becomes paramount. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See that Paul's in prison, and yet the matter of first importance to him was the progress, the advance of the gospel. It was a first order priority. Everything else was subordinate to it. It mattered above all else. It mattered even more than his own his own preferences or his own priorities or personal comforts. He was about one thing progress of the gospel. Now, this was a little stunning to the Philippians. They didn't, they didn't quite grasp this. They, they couldn't really see how Paul's imprisonment was actually good for the gospel. They, they didn't know what to make of this, so, so they wondered, is, is this imprisonment, Paul, that you are now in prison, is that going to hinder the work of the gospel? It seems like it. That, that somehow if you're in prison, that's going to impede the, the progress of the gospel. I mean, let's face it, Paul, you're now a convict. I don't see how that is really going to help us as we try and advance the gospel. See, they think Paul's imprisonment is going to do damage to the Christian cause. But, but Paul is sure to set them straight. He wants them to understand. And so he says, I want you to know, brothers... That is, I want, I want you to think rightly about this imprisonment of mine. I want you to understand, actually, what's going on and how God is working in this. We're going to talk more about Paul's suffering in a moment, but for the time being, I want you to see this, that from Paul's perspective, his imprisonment was working toward the furtherance of the gospel. And that was his first priority. He was, he was first and foremost concerned about the spread of the gospel. That mattered to him more than life itself. He wanted to see the gospel increase across the breadth of his culture and his global context. He wanted the gospel to thrive and to flourish and to bring others to Christ. He wanted it to move forward at all costs, even at the cost of his own personal comfort and convenience. That is what mattered to Paul. Gospel progress was of paramount importance. And do you know the difference between paramount and tantamount? Paramount means that it is above everything else. Everything is underneath it. Tantamount means that it's equal to. See, for some of us, gospel progress, the advance of the gospel, is on an equal plane with other things in our lives. Good things, perhaps. But it, it's not paramount. It's not above everything else. It was for Paul. When the gospel becomes profoundly real, its progress becomes the most important thing to you in your life. So I have to ask, is what is true for Paul true for you? 
Do, do you take even those inconveniences, those discomforts of life, and, and disregard them in a sense, in, an, in a very intentional sense, in order to advance the gospel? Or, perhaps, like me, you prefer ease and comfort even at times over the advance of the gospel? Or do you grumble and complain when you find yourself in such a place where, where discomfort because of life situations is great? Maybe you find yourself annoyed or irritable or frustrated or embittered because of the inconveniences and the disappointments of this life. Let me, let me ask the question a, a little differently. Let me ask it this way. What, what are you living for? What are you living for? Is it your own preferences and priorities and purposes? That, that, that you somehow have a destination, you have a place to go, you know you want to, where you want to go and how to get there, and that's what you're about. That's why you're here on this earth. Or is it, is it like Paul that, that actually that's not the end at all. That's just a means to a greater end. The greater end is the progress of the gospel. That's what God has put me here, Paul says. And now even here I am in prison. Let me use that for the advance of the gospel. Don't you see, brothers? That's what God is doing here, he says. Friends, as a family of faith, as, as a church, I want us to be marked by that first order priority above all things. I want it personally in my own life, and I want it for you, and I want it for us as a church. College church is known for many things. I pray we would be known for one thing. The progress of the gospel is paramount to us. It is above everything else. I want you to see there's also a second thing that happens when the gospel becomes profoundly real to you. In verse 14, it's this. That gospel passion becomes productive. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Let, let me explain what I mean by gospel passion. I, I mean in the classic sense, the word passion from the Latin means suffering. I don't mean it in the emotional or affectionate sense like we often use it today, but rather that suffering, that is when we talk about at Easter time, Christ's passion, we're talking about the suffering of Christ on the cross. So here, gospel passion, that is suffering for the sake of the gospel becomes fruitful. It becomes productive. That, that's what Paul is saying. 
In God's economy, he takes, he takes suffering for sake of the gospel and he brings something sweet from it. Something good, fruitful. And we see that for Paul here, he's facing hostility in at least two ways. He's, he's facing hostility from without, that he's been in prison now, and, and he's facing rivalry from within. That there are even those in the church who are seeking to do him harm. Unfathomable, but true. So first, this hostility from without. Paul's imprisonment is because of Christ. Now, let's be clear about the conditions. There's nothing to be admired about his situation. Prison was cold, it was dark, it was dank. He was chained to a soldier, more than likely, possibly two for Paul, that, that would have been a prison. That is, he was, he was a man who, by his very nature, sought to, to travel and spread the gospel, going from place to place for gospel good. But here he's confined, limited in what he could do, without liberty, without privacy, without simple comforts. That's the reality of prison for Paul. And, and yet, he saw this. He speaks of how it's bearing fruit. How it actually is, is bringing good things about. And he mentions that in two particular ways. First, the gospel is going forth to the imperial guard. The, the soldiers of the palace who, who were sectioned off as a group of soldiers, kind of like our special forces, that they would be inaccessible to the average person. They were told... Uh, about 9,000 in number. And, and Paul tells us by virtue of his imprisonment, the gospel is now going forward amongst these soldiers who nobody else would have an opportunity to which, by which to speak the gospel to them. But Paul does by virtue of his situation. And that, that somehow word is spreading throughout, it sounds like. And that they're watching Paul, they're watching this imprisoned man and the suffering he endures and, and they see something distinct and different from anything they've known. And, and this is marking them and so the gospel is going forward amongst the imperial guard. Second, his, his imprisonment was fruitful this way that, that it was an encouragement to other believers so they became more confident and they preached Christ now with more boldness. That's verse 14. See, his, his imprisonment, Paul sees his imprisonment as being for Christ. That is, I'm in prison for Christ's sake because of the name of Christ. And yet, it is being used for good. Frank Thielman understands the importance of this when he writes, The purpose of Christ's suffering was the advance of God's redemptive work. Paul believes his own suffering has the same redemptive quality. Thus, his imprisonment is not simply a result of his Christian commitment, but is the necessary means through which Paul fulfills his calling. Through suffering, he fulfills his calling. Did you hear that? Paul's trials and difficulties are the necessary means by which he fulfills his call. God's 
call upon his life, his purpose and what he is called to do. It's actually through the trials and the troubles that he's facing that he's accomplishing that. It is the necessary means for fruitfulness in the furtherance of the gospel. Let, let me give you a couple examples of what I think this looks like in, in a 21st century context, in our own, in our own setting. Um, I recall this day like it happened this morning. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago. It was uh, 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 upon a, a visit. I had the privilege of visiting uh, Jim and Carolyn Orm in their home. And it was, it was the day that they had just received news that Carolyn had cancer. And uh, that was, they understood the seriousness of that. They, they, because of family history and what that meant, they knew this was, this was serious. They didn't know the timeline or what was ahead, but, but they knew what it meant. And I, I sat there and and I was amazed as I listened to Carolyn and I thought about it on the drive back to church that she, she had just read this little booklet called um, um, Don't, Don't Waste Your Cancer by John Piper. And, and this is what she said to me. She said, I want my cancer to be used for the glory of God. I want my cancer to be used for the glory of God. That, friends, is, is this Pauline mindset that, that sees that suffering is actually fruitful for gospel purposes. And she desires that. That's astonishing to me. I think of another example. It, it happened... Uh, some years ago now, you may know the story next door, Wheaton College, of the, the uh, five missionaries who traveled um, to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians and gave their lives. Um, and on the heels of that, at Wheaton College, there were many graduates now who, who by, by essentially because of the sacrifice and the suffering of these five Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the like, who gave their lives for the advance of the gospel. Because of that, now at Wheaton, there was a spike. There was this sharp increase in those graduates who were called to pursue missionary service around the globe. That was the, that was the fruit of their sacrifice and suffering and even their death for the advance of the gospel in the lives of many, even in our own midst, and perhaps maybe even some of you who are here this morning were marked and shaped by that experience. That, that's, that's amazing to me to watch how God works that way. Their suffering became fruitful for God's kingdom purposes. Now, Paul's not only facing suffering from without, he's facing suffering from within, rivalry from within, selfish ambition, those who seek to afflict him, do him harm. Quite frankly, I think that almost feels harder at times. You're, you know, within the church, so to speak, there are those who, who seek to harm you somehow. And yet, yet Paul says nothing except that that they're thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment and, 
As long as the gospel's advanced, it's okay. He, he doesn't even delve into their motives and why they want to do what they do. As long as the gospel goes forward. I have to ask this question. Do, do we embrace hardship, difficulty, suffering for the sake of the gospel such that it would be used in God's sovereignly wise purposes to show how Christ is sufficient and thus spread the gospel and encourage other believers who, who maybe are going through similar difficulties so that they would be more bold in speaking the gospel? Do we handle suffering that way? If so, then it is a sure sign that the gospel has become beautiful to you. That it it has become profoundly real. This was Paul's way. It was the way of Christ. It should be the way of all who call upon Christ. And it leads us now to this third thing that happens when, when the gospel becomes your defining center. It's in verse 18. It's namely this. That gospel proclamation becomes joyous. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. yes. And I will rejoice. Paul looks at the hostility from without, the rivalry from within, and he says, what then? What, what does it matter? What, what really counts but only this, that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is proclaimed, that the gospel is preached in every way, whether good or bad. Look at what Paul says in just a few verses later. Verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I live or die, it doesn't matter, Paul says. The only thing that matters is that Christ is honored, that Christ is preached, that the gospel is proclaimed. College church, can we say that? Can you say that? Somewhere in your worship folder, you'll find our summary tagline for who we are as a church. It's it's simply this proclaiming the gospel. Now, we didn't hire a marketing firm to come up with that. We didn't even come up with it ourselves. We stole it from Paul. Right here. Proclaiming the gospel. That that, that would be what marks us in all things, in every opportunity, small things and great things alike. That it would be of utmost importance. Whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever happens, that Christ 
would be proclaimed. That the gospel would be preached. Can you say that? Is your life oriented that way? Is that your disposition, your attitude? I, I can think of someone who, who was marked that way, who looked like that. As I watched her life, I was amazed by it. Some of you know Phyllis Tobias. and In her waning days, she was, she was put on uh, hospice care for almost about I think it ended up being about a three-month period. And uh, she had just begun hospice care, and various people were coming in, and I had a chance to call on her and visit with her. And, and, and here she is in her frailty. She is, she's limited now. She, she doesn't have the same freedoms she once had. And, and in her weakness, she's more or less confined to her house. And she began recounting God's kindness to her, in how since she couldn't go out and, and bear witness to the love of Christ, God was bringing people into her life so that she could still do that. And that brought her joy. And she began to tell me about the, uh, the man who came to change her oxygen and, and how she had the chance to talk about Jesus with him. And, and that, that, was, that was a joy in her day. And, and then she... She began to talk about um, the chaplain for hospice who was now calling on her, and she was genuinely concerned. It seemed like, from her perspective, the chaplain didn't understand the gospel. And so Phyllis was kind enough to explain the gospel to her. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. In the midst of suffering, her joy was to share Christ and to proclaim Christ. That joy, that satisfaction that's connected to the gospel, when we know that, we will will hunger and long and look for every opportunity to speak about Christ. And to share his love and to proclaim Jesus above all things. That, that's the joy that comes from proclaiming the gospel that is real when you've been profoundly affected by the gospel. That's what Paul knew in his life. I pray it's what we know as a church that it becomes our driving passion And that we follow Paul's model. And that it would burn and rage within us. One commentator understands it this way when he writes, It is not the self-satisfied delight that everything is going our way, but the settled peace that arises from making the gospel the focus of life and from understanding that God is able to advance the gospel under the most difficult circumstances. Phyllis knew that and, Joy, and, and Carolyn knew that. I want to know that. Paul knew it. I want you to know it. 
I, I want it to shape us and mark us and change us in how we think and what we say and what we do in overcoming the fears that so quickly show up in those opportunities in those moments. So that as a church, we look more like Paul than anything else. And because Paul looked like Jesus. Maybe this is not what characterizes your life. I want to encourage you this morning to, to think deeply about these things and allow the Spirit to work its way in the depths of your soul. And then to encourage you to spend your life laboring for the gospel. Looking for every opportunity to speak the gospel, to bear witness to the mercies of God and the love of Christ. Even to embrace the trials and the hardship and the affliction and the difficulties that come your way as the very means that the Lord will use to advance the gospel for his kingdom purposes. For when the gospel is profoundly real, it will become your defining center, your all-consuming passion. And you, like Paul, will be concerned for its advance above all things. Even amidst sorrow and suffering, those things will become fruitful and productive for God's purposes. And as you proclaim Christ, you will know great joy. May that be said of us. And in that, I will rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we look to your word because we want to hear from you. We want to know you. We want to be changed by you. And we see Paul and we see what he beheld and this gospel that so called him and shaped him and changed him. And we want to be like that, Lord. Individually and corporately, we ask you would work that way. Where, where lesser things command our attention, where lesser things distract us from these endeavors, would you, Lord, bring change? Bring boldness to speak the gospel without fear wherever you would call us, that we as a church would be, would be known for that, Lord, passionate about the gospel above all things. We pray it in Christ's name.